and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Dr. Matthew Chandler, an adjunct instructor for SNHU and other institutions. Now, like usual, we're going to talk about his academic and professional background, but we're going to focus on his research into the early years of the video game industry. So join us as we revive and then kick around the old obscure video game consoles like the Magnavox Odyssey and the Coleco Telstar and draw some comparisons between the early days of home video game systems and our modern video game industry. So join us on this very Gen X trip down memory lane. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Matthew Chandler and I am a historian. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I always have some people that go on with like, you know, three or four minute explanations for all their minute, what they do with their lives. I have, but historian I, works. That's awesome. I mean, I have like seven minor fields in a major field. You know, it's a, I could go through all of them if you'd like, but it seems like a, a catch all well, phrase. A, I'm a historian. This is the point where I usually ask, you know, what can you talk about your academic and professional background? So yeah, let's 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 talk about what you do, okay. what you've been doing, starting with the BA and on. Is that is that what we're going for? Yeah, here? sure. Let's let's go back to the BA and just kind of take it from there. All right. Uh, well, I went to a small liberal arts college in upstate New York called Union College in Schenectady, New York. I majored in just history, both American and European. Then. I switched gears, moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and went to Louisiana State University for my master's. I specialized in European economic history at that point. Then, fast forward to 2006, I started my PhD at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My major area of specialization was the history of technology, and my minor fields were British industrial and labor history, Japanese industrial and economic history, and I'm blanking on my other major... Oh, uh, sorry, uh, American labor history and urban history. I started in 2016, but I did not finish until 2018. Life got in the way, but I kept going. And I think that's an important lesson. You know, you don't give up, you keep moving, and you keep trying to realize your goal. And my goal was getting the PhD in history. So it took a long time, but it was worth it in the end. No, I hear you. It took a while for me too. I mean, it's um, between BA, I was just talking to, just talking to my son about this. He's nine. He was he asked how long it took me to get through college because he heard it takes four years. <laughs> and so when I was talking about my, I, I laid out my BA, my MA, my PhD. And, and when I added it all up, it came to like 16 years <laughs> or something. And he, he just it, it blew his mind and he couldn't believe that somebody would actually do that to themselves. Well, and almost double his entire life expectancy you've spent right. you know, <laughs> with your nose in a book. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a whole lot of fun. So you, you identified your research or, or your, your fields for the PhD and those fields are much more, they're much more specific than the fields I did with my PhD program. My, my fields were, uh, you know, Latin America and uh, modern U S and uh, well, modern, modern U S was my major field. Latin America, early U.S. for my minors. I didn't quite get into specialization about um, technology or anything like that. So what were your big research projects during school when you were in those fields? Well, I wrote a, 
uh, I would call a mediocre master's thesis on Swiss <laughs> economic neutrality during World War II. Uh, okay. Quite frankly, I'd like to purge that from the web because it really does not reflect my best efforts. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I jokes aside, but yeah, it, I love the topic. I love the area, but quite frankly, I needed to continue to develop as a scholar, which is why we go on to the PhD for the PhD. Right. Um, at the PhD level, I actually ended up writing two separate dissertations, uh, but the one that I decided to go with as my research project was uh, a history of the early video game industry. Uh, it began with the first commercial uh, video game console in 1972, and I ended with the emergence of Nintendo as a true force in the American market uh, around 1992. But Ultimately, my research in gaming began uh, as early as the 1950s, looking at some of the initial attempts to have a moving image that the player could manipulate on a screen. So we're going back to 1957 and 1958 at that point. So uh, that then brought me back to studying early electromechanical games as far back as World War I and beyond. So uh, I, I had this interest in trying to understand fundamentally why people enjoyed play and then i followed it up with follow uh, excuse me uh, figuring out ways that this could become commercialized and a viable product for people to um, particularly enjoy in their homes so my focus was on the home video game market again between 1972 and 1992 uh, so it's a bit of business history a bit of social history and a bit of technological history so when you're talking 1972, are we talking like Pong or are we talking something? Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So yeah. So Pong is a uh, an arcade game at first, right? right? Uh, it's a coin-op game. Uh, the home version of Pong called Home Pong uh, comes out a little bit after. So the first system is actually the Magnavox Odyssey. It's transistorized. It's quite, quite obsolete uh, upon release. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly expensive. So uh, it's so it's so primitive. And I don't really like to use the word primitive because let's be honest, in 72, something that you could see on your screen and move around is pretty freaking yeah. cool. Uh, but, you know, at this point, we're in uh, we're in the chip age and the thing is still full of transistors. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to use mylar screen overlays to oh, wow have any other game on the screen besides for effectively what is what you would think of as a pong type of table tennis game so then we move forward through all of the major consoles and i look at number one how the companies marketed the the, the console uh and really number two how they continue to grow a user base and an enthusiasm for this idea of you know digital interactivity if that makes sense yeah so that first system sorry you said that was a magnavox yeah, it, it was. It's the Magnavox Odyssey, is what it's called. And and uh, quite quite frankly, as I see it, and this could be debated, I suppose it is an allusion to uh, you know two thousand one Kubrick's mm -hmm. film. Uh, you see that a lot in the early consoles, uh, allusions to uh, major changes in, in larger technological systems. So, for instance, uh, Coleco, which is a toy company, came out with a system called the Telstar, uh, again, a little bit later in the 70s. And uh, as you probably were thinking, yes, that is the Telstar satellite. Mm -hmm. So there's almost always some type of link between, you know, the future and really cool space age tech and these 
honestly not very sophisticated home video game consoles. But again, they're cool at the time, and I, I certainly would have probably bought all of them and gone broke. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm I was I was born in '75. I'm, I'm you know I'm not going to be. A, I, I'll just go ahead and date myself. Uh, so I kind of grew up in that, you know, late seventies through the eighties. And so I had, you know, considered myself to be fairly well-versed in video game consoles, but wow, the Magnavox Odyssey, I had, I've never heard of that one. When you say that it was super expensive, what was, I mean, how popular was this? this system? <laughs> uh, I mean, per unit, uh, per unit sold, uh, over the course of the duration of the console. I mean, we're not really talking any number that would have made Magnavox feel as if this was going to be a success. <laughs> okay. uh, so, I mean, we're, you, number one, we're talking about a price point of around $150 in 1972 dollars. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you use a, you know, a price inflation calculator, you're looking at something that's multiple hundreds of dollars that has uh, very limited functionality. And it was also something that I found interesting trying to convince not only just heads of household to buy this thing, but also trying to, you know, Magnavox itself, trying to figure out and rationalize how they could sell a product with, with such a limited appeal. So, you know, they're actually not only marketing a product, they're marketing an entire concept. And I thought that was pretty freaking cool, quite honestly. You know, uh, trying to sell the future to people in, in this, this little brown box. And it's covered in that, that fake wood, you know, that faux wood <laughs> Uh, pattern that was quite popular in the 70s and you, you know you, you see it on large televisions and it's a cool device it really is but it was so finicky it it, it, it had hundreds of little tiny pieces in the box when you got it you know so you open this box and there's there's poker chips and there's all these overlays all this stuff is all over the room so i'd imagine people lost items immediately upon opening the package more than once you know so, <laughs> you have to buy a replacement you know did it so. come with like all of the games all in one package or did you oh yeah so oh yeah yeah so uh they call it uh, there's sort of a, a a misdirection or an illusion at first almost because they tell the consumer that there are in fact uh, multiple games and interchangeable games. But the reality of the system's uh, uh, organizational structure was each of the games is already hardwired into the console itself. Mm -hmm. So all you're really doing is swapping out plug boards. It's not programmable in any true sense. So for instance, if you were to take the current PlayStation, the current Xbox or the current Nintendo console, the Switch, you're actually taking a game that contains memory and putting that into the device. And that's how you get the interchangeability. Mm-hmm. In the Magnavox Odyssey, all of the games are hardwired into the console itself. So uh, it, it's not programmable in the modern sense. That's why it's, it's, it's almost a precursor console to the programmable concept. And the first programmable concept is actually uh, by a company, uh, which you might be familiar with, you might not be, uh, Fairchild Semiconductor and Camera. Um, they came out with a product called the Channel F. And the Channel F stood for fun. And it was the first game, uh, first console to utilize interchangeable ca- uh, cartridges. That was the major innovation with that console. It mm. failed. And ultimately what happens is Atari capitalizes on its arcade experience, its coin-op experience, develops Home Pong, and then develops what, what becomes known as the Atari 2600, or later the video computer system. You made an interesting point a few minutes ago where you're talking about how do you market this to 
people who aren't used to video game consoles because today sure, sure we sure. all know what a PlayStation and a Nintendo and, and so when you say oh there's a new play, there's a PlayStation 5 coming out oh okay I know what that is so right. yeah and, and if right. I'm a PlayStation fan okay cool I'll probably buy that but back in those days the concept was alien to everybody <laughs> so that I can imagine yeah, the marketing must have been really difficult to um, to manage <laughs> And it was, and for, for for Magnavox, the problem was is they 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 didn't really put their full weight behind it. And you know, counterfactuals aside, had they put more money into marketing early on, they might have had better success. But very frustratingly, for the creator of this console, the Magnavox Odyssey, people began associating the first video games proper with Pong and with Atari rather than his device and uh, Magnavox. And what's actually really interesting, and this is a sub sub sort of topic related is Magnavox didn't actually develop the console in-house. The guy who invented this console along with a team of engineers was actually at a defense contractor named Sanders Associates. So Sanders Associates didn't have production capabilities in-house. So they needed to sort of outsource this to a, uh, a manufacturer. They were rejected by many people and eventually Magnavox decided to take on the project. So because it really wasn't their idea, they never really threw their full weight behind mm. it. And Magnavox, and this is not surprising, like many you know companies today, was in a fair amount of trouble with the SEC at the time for stock manipulation. Hmm. So you know they're trying to also re, re, kind of take the company and start over and demonstrate to consumers that they are that trustworthy company uh, that they had been, say, during the era of radio, for instance. Yeah. You know? um, so okay. So that, that little chapter itself is, is truly fascinating, um, but you have to be interested in the dynamics behind the scenes. The technologies themselves are not going to you know, uh, really sell the, sell the story, so to right. speak. Right. And so uh, you were saying that the, the inventor of the uh, Odyssey was frustrated because Pong kind of became known as the first video game, even though that's not really accurate. Was that, it's yeah, not accurate, was that a more of a, like a, a more successful marketing thing on the behalf of Atari or was it? Yes, it is. And I, I don't like to use the word synergistic. It sounds pretty pretentious. <laughs> but, uh, but really what Atari had done is is an excellent job at associating themselves with the coin-op market, mm-hmm. right? So when people spoke of video games in bars at the time, you know, that's really where, where most people played them early on. Uh, the association, the popular association with Atari is where we started to, to get that concept. So, you know, in the late 70s, even though there was a, a number of major consoles on the market, uh, people would start to say, oh, I'm going to play an Atari. You know, kind of like when I was a child, how people would associate every video game console with mm-hmm. a Nintendo. Yeah. You know, um, my, my, my parents still would do that today. You know, they'll call the new PlayStation a <laughs> Nintendo. Uh, and, you know, and actually, Nintendo um, and Atari both tried to, again, capitalize that, on that. But they also had to be careful because... If people started to buy other systems thinking they were Ataris or Nintendos, obviously then Atari and Nintendo would lose out on that sale. So they actually tried to demonstrate they were the originals and that everyone else was was you know a copycat. So, I wonder, you, you say that Atari was uh, did some better marketing because they associated themselves with the coin-op market before they went with home with home yeah. video. I wonder yeah. if playing into that was the fact that, you know, coin-ops, like you say, were in bars and kind of in public spaces. And so I wonder if there's just kind of a sense that, you know, you go out and you play video games when you're out, you play it with your friends. Um, so there's kind of a right. communal aspect to it. And then you can then right. later take that home with you. Whereas the Magnavox thing is 
doesn't have any kind of communal aspect to it. It's just something that just pops up in the home. And so I wonder if maybe that plays into some of Atari's success also. It does. And what, what Magnavox does, what Atari does is something that is sort of a, you know, a larger contextual issue here. You know, we're talking about the cold war. We're talking about people uh, being concerned. You know, we're talking about profound anxieties. So um, some of the research that influenced my thinking here related to how actually the television uh, served as a source of comfort for the Cold War home. So um, books about the, the so-called electronic hearth, this concept that, you know, the television, a radio, and then, of course, the console later on would allow you to enjoy being out and experiencing the world around you without actually having to leave your home. So you're safe in your home without having to go to the bar mm. to play that game. So also, you know, there's there's this increasing, and it's a pan, it's a moral panic a, a, again. You know that that's overused quite often, uh, but th- this moral panic associating arcades with crime, deviance, and organized organized, uh, you know, like the mafia, for instance. Uh, so you know, parents were increasingly worried that having their children out in public space places like arcades uh, would lead to deviance. And the that's something that a lot of the home video game uh, companies started to capitalize on. You know, they suggested the home is safe. The home is where you can, uh, you know, defy traditional gender roles because the father can be beaten by the daughter. Oh, you know, yeah. the grandfather is just as technologically adept as, as the grandchild. So there's all this sort of manipulation and contortion of, of traditional gender roles, traditional familiar roles. And it's actually, it's actually pretty cool to study, you know, and that gets, that gets overlooked when you're just looking at the technical aspects. So I didn't want to just focus on here's the specifications of the Odyssey. Here's the specifications of the channel F here's the specifications of the original Nintendo console, you know, because I I didn't really see that as, as being interesting to beyond a very small audience of, of a specific group of historians of technology and business. So um, the social aspect really did appeal to me. Um, and I had mentioned I'd written a different version of my dissertation, and that actually dealt with more of a sociological approach to the history of technology. Uh, my advisor hated it. <laughs> uh, he is a strict historian of technology. He is one of actually the first historians of technology ever, and he did not want me going down an unorthodox path. So redid it. Had to be more of a business and technology history, and he was happy finally. And uh, I now have that shiny right. piece of paper. <laughs> well, I, I I like the the social the social angle also because the technology part of it. Yeah, I mean, basically the storyline is that yeah, technology improves. Okay, well, duh. <laughs> it's like, but I think I think I really like the story you're telling though about kind of the social aspect of it where there the the concept that the daughter can beat the dad at something in a yeah. in a private space yeah. that is that's an interesting right. concept. that the private space that's right. the key right it has to be in the private space of the home right so as long as it's, oh yeah you don't want it happening at the bar <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 exactly so as long as no one can see then it's that is perfectly great and what's also fascinating to me is in a period of time where you know you don't see major corporations marketing to people of color Magnavox actually targeted black people for the console. So they were indicating also these successful black families and having them in their advertisements. And I recall one advertisement vividly from it was 
it was in a Midwest uh, newspaper. You know, they're immaculately dressed, and you know, they're saying for an evening, evening on the, they're not going out on the evening on the town. They're staying home with their Magnavox Odyssey. You know, and I think also that relates to the fact that the Magnavox Odyssey costs a lot of lot of money, and you know, this was one or the other. You know, you couldn't buy the Odyssey and continue to go out every every day that month because <laughs> you would have, you'd go broke. Right. You know, um, so yeah, yeah. huh. So what, what was the sociological angle going to be if your uh, advisor hadn't shot you down? Uh, okay, so in there's the history of technology, there's the sociology of ta- technology, and there's the philosophy of technology. All of us who study this stuff are perfectly willing to overlap a little bit, but the sociological aspect requires the use of these large theoretical systems. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, One is known as the social construct- construction of technology. Another is known as actor network theory, and it's quite esoteric. It's quite out there, and you have to have everything fit precisely into this theoretical framework. Otherwise, it doesn't work, and it doesn't always work, and people pushed this uh, sort of a a research program, and a lot of scholars in the history of technology rejected it. Uh, it's, it's not as concrete as they liked. It's not as, as grounded in fact. So, uh, that's what he was, was concerned about more than anything else. Um, Mm. so I understood where he was going, but I happened to like theory and he didn't like theory. And, you know, I think that's part of what we see when we have working relationships with our advisors and with our colleagues, Mm -hmm. we're not going to see things the same way, you know? Right. Um, so it, when we talk about say historiography, when we talk about two political, uh, historians, they might very well study the exact same topic and they're going to come up with completely different conclusions. You know, and that, that's something that I find is important for students to understand that, you know, there's approaches and then there's schools of thought and, you know, historiographical schools. And that, that can be a little confusing. So I think he also wanted to make sure that I wasn't blurring boundaries so extensively that it would be hard to see where the history of technology began and the sociological stuff, you know, began. Um, so I, I think he ultimately helped me in the end. Mm-hmm. But he was also a way that the way that he guided me actually taught me how to teach because he didn't really give a lot of specific feedback in text. And what I found as a teacher is I students need that. So his lack of, of you know, inline copy edits actually made me sort of focus on copy edits as a teacher. Mm. So, you know, the two don't seeming don't seem to be related, but they actually are related. So, you know, the research project led me to change the way I teach because at the time, of course, I was teaching, you know, so just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. No, well, th- yeah, this, I mean, it's a fascinating topic and I mean, in some ways it demonstrates a lot of the tensions of just studying history in general is that, you know, two, two historians can reach different interpretations. And, and that's, that's one of the kind of the themes of a lot of our courses um, right. at SNHU and elsewhere uh, is that historical interpretations vary. They change from person to person. The one piece of evidence can be used in more than one way to arrive at more than one conclusion and all of that. So correct. That's that's really cool. And so you did the dissertation on the on the history of video games. And so what was what, what were your overall you know, conclusions at the end of the process? What what was so, the, the big gist of what you were getting at? The well, the thesis had a number of parts, but I I think the key takeaway is that the early video game industry experienced a number of I would call them catastrophic market collapses or crashes. Uh, There's two major crashes. Um, One happens in 1977 and one happens in the mid-1980s. And the reason why really has to do with what I was suggesting at the beginning here. 
companies weren't sure how to sell these products. Companies weren't really sure what to emphasize, what to include, what not to include. So there lacked stable business models and competitive models for these companies to deal with one another. So what ends up emerging is a series of um, oligopolistic frameworks. So there's usually two or three major companies that compete with each other. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's not healthy for the industry in the long run. And we can actually see that today. So it's, it's, it's one of these situations where, you know, history has changed clearly since 1972 to 2019. But if you look at the, the home video game market today, what do you have? You have a big three. You have Nintendo, you have Sony, and you have Microsoft. What did you have during the early 1980s? You had Atari, you had Coleco. And you had Mattel. That was it. There were other companies, of course, but they could not break through. They could not compete. So um, the problem is, is that, like I say, is when Atari got sick, the whole industry got sick. Mm. You know, um, when when Nintendo had struggles, the rest of the industry had struggles. Same thing with Sega. So the the overall reliance on but a few firms led to an instable, uh, excuse me, an unstable market dynamic that led to consumer uncertainty and also led to uh, corporate uncertainty. So again, even through the period of time where it's clearly this is a multi-billion dollar industry, think about that. We're talking in the late 1970s, early 80s, we're eclipsing the billion dollar mark, mm-hmm. you know, more profitable than the film industry by far. And, you know, and then the whole thing just collapses twice. So that is very difficult to explain. So that really was my focus as to why these crashes happen. And, you know, to try to figure out if these crashes would happen again in the future. And uh, yes, they will. You know, yeah. there's, really no, there's really no question about that. So. so if we've got a, there seems to be kind of this equilibrium you're talking about where we generally have, what, I don't know, two, three, maybe four at a time that are kind of the big, big yeah. players. Does that number just kind of come about naturally because these consoles are expensive and most people try to invest in one system? Or what, what do you think is... Oh, what- wait, wait, do you mean in terms of user base or do you, term, do you mean in terms of the companies themselves? I guess, I guess either way, because I'm, I'm trying to think of it from the consumer perspective. Does it yes. make sense to have more than two or three? Because if you've got a bunch of different ones to choose, I mean, putting aside today's, you know, multiplayer, multi over over the internet type thing, putting that aside, you know, it's just the idea of, you know, do I, when I'm trying to choose a game system to buy, it kind of consumers, you know, what, what, I forget what it's called, the paradox of choice or something where you don't want to have too many choices because then everything falls apart. <laughs> right. So and there's also the, illu- the illusion of choice. Illusion of choice. That's what well. I'm getting at. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. So do you think that's one of the kind of the constraints that limits th- that number or is it, or is there something else at play? Do you think? I, I think yes, but I also think there's another dynamic that um, it might be overlooked by people who don't necessarily study the gaming industry as uh, we're so familiar now with third party developers, meaning a company that's not a major console producer making software for all the systems. Yeah. Right. So let, something like Activision. Well, Activision, as, as you probably know today, is one of the largest video game pr- uh, companies in the world. Right. right? right. Uh, one of the largest publishers in the world at the time of, say, the first Atari console, they didn't exist yet. Uh, and what happens is the emergence of the third-party uh, gaming software, excuse me, the software industry, creates a total chaotic situation. Because before a company like Activision or a company like iMagic, those were the first two, before they started making games for these uh, these systems, if you bought an Atari, you could only play Atari games. Right. 
if you bought a Coleco, Coleco games. But with the start of the third party industry, what we now have is the ability for these software makers to have the same games on all three systems. Mm -hmm. So then that actually requires the consumer to make a, a more difficult choice based upon price, based upon graphical capabilities, for instance, and, you know, based upon what we would call today maybe fanboyism mm. no gender bias there at all you know it's just that's the term we would use right. you know i like atari i'm an atarian well i like mattel you know and you develop this sort of strange loyalty to a corporation you know and and it's almost like you're on the team mm -hmm. and that you know that i think that's an interesting aspect to this but in terms of overall why there is a limit to how many producers there are Look, R&D is incredibly expensive, mm -hmm. right? And a company taking the risk in plopping down X amount of dollars on the development of a console, not every company is going to be willing to do that, especially when it was incredibly clear to large companies that this was a terribly supersaturated market. You know, all these small companies existed co alongside the big ones. So then the big ones push all the small ones out of business. But... The, the small ones affect the bottom dollar line of all the big ones. So this crazy dynamic back and forth between these huge companies and these small companies, I think ultimately means that the big companies survive and the small companies perish. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there are exceptions, and I'm not making blanket generalizations here. Uh, but that there are patterns we see in history, um, and this is this is the pattern that we can see in the home video game industry, at least as I interpret it. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, like you said, someone else might be studying this and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" You know, uh, uh, Chandler's completely wrong here. You know, it has to do with something else entirely, and you know that's why conferences are great because you know I can give a talk about my view, and then someone in the audience will say, "Well, actually, I don't believe you. I think you're wrong," and then we can have that you know discussion about why I'm wrong or why I'm right, um, which. Always happens. You know? mm -hmm. Everyone has to. Everyone has to share their perspective. So, um, yeah, yeah. Because it seems like, and I'm by no means, you know, a, a, a gamer. I grew up playing video games, and so I like video games. You know, ever since I became a boring old grown up, I don't have time to play games like I used to. But I still kind of try to keep up with what's happening in the world and all of that. And it seems to be that, yeah, in the current world we live in, where you've got, yeah, Nintendo, Xbox, and Sony. It's base. It seems to be when people are talking about which system do I want to buy? Yeah, like you say, there's you know maybe a slight performance edge on one of the systems versus the other. But the the other thing that seems to be kind of a deciding factor is that there are still some in-house games that are only available on one specific console Correct. that might matter. Yes, yes. Yeah, so like Halo, for instance, as a Microsoft IP, you know, for me as a as a gamer, I, I've always loved the Halo series. So, you know, if I know Halo is going to be an exclusive on a Microsoft console, you know, I'm going to be more inclined to purchase that console. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the one thing we have overlooked, of course, and this does get more complicated, um, is the emergence of the personal computing market. Yeah. Uh, so we have home computers very early on. Atari makes home computers. That's actually one of the reasons why Atari has trouble. They make too many products. They're trying to sell too many things. And if you were to take one of Atari's home computers from the same time as Atari's first home console, the features are pretty much identical. You can just plug in one of the Atari games, and it's very it's very hard for Atari to convince somebody to buy, you know, well, you already have the console, now buy one of our computers. Mm -hmm. Why? You know? So uh, Atari doesn't get, I wouldn't call it greedy, but Atari has segmented its market 
and it's taking away money from its console industry, uh, excuse me, its console business and, and vice versa. So, you know, today the PC gaming market, I mean, to, to have a really nice PC gaming console, uh, a gaming rig today, you know, it's anywhere between $2,000 to $5,000, mm-hmm. you know, where the console we're still at, and I'm not a big fan of this concept actually, but uh, it's, you know, razor and blade pricing. You know, the idea that you, you spend a little bit of money on the console and the, the producer gets all the money back for you buying games, mm-hmm. you know, so the razor and the blade like Gillette, you know, you spend a, a very little, very little on the, 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 the razor itself and you spend a basically yearly income on buying Gillette blades, you know, so. Uh, oh, yeah, because with, with uh, the. Sorry, that was a terrible <laughs> joke, but anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so the razor and blade model is, 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 is not my favorite way of explaining it, but that is often how people do explain well, it's, the price. it's, um, what do you call it, loss leader, where the, te- you know, you, you pay three or four hundred bucks for the console itself. Right. The console right. might cost five or six hundred bucks to make, so the, instru- so the right. manufacturer is going to lose some cash on the, on, on right. the, the actual console, but each game right. is 60, 70 or a hundred bucks. <laughs> so right. it's like three and games then, that cost the same as a console. So precisely. And, and then what also starts to happen is the product life cycle for each of these consoles gets longer, yeah. you know? Um, and in a period of time, of course, or we can debate whether or not we're beyond Moore's law or not. That's probably another discussion, but uh, you know, the reality of it is, is my Xbox from a few years ago is completely obsolete, you know, in terms of its internals and they'll keep selling this console probably for another while longer, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that does make sense. It makes financial sense for the, for the the locked in user. And it makes sense for the company making the game. But whereas with a PC, I can upgrade constantly. So, you know, we often speak of, and again, this is a sort of a cliche or trite concept in the history of technology or business history, but we consider, you know, PCs to sort of be open and experimental. Whereas we look at consoles as black boxes, you know, the the consumer is not meant to look inside, you know, you don't peek under the hood. Uh, Whereas the PC market is much more about tinkering. And that gets back to the original intention of the early, you know, hobbyists with computers. So we really see, we really see the industry go in two very different directions, if not three, you know, we have coin op, we have computers and we have consoles. Um, so all three are also all competing for the same 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 uh, revenue, you know, during a period of time where we're, we're witnessing macroeconomic uh, concerns uh, related to, you know, Cold War crises. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, Nixon shocks and all that stuff afterwards. Right. Uh, throw in some real history there. How about right. that? <laughs> <laughs> this is just as real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I swear it's legitimate. Yeah. But no, yeah, yeah, jokes aside, but, you know, the, the thing is, is that when I first started doing this, you know, there's a field of study called game studies. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually looking potentially to that being my tenure track job. It's a hard decision to make, quite honestly, because I love history. But, uh, you know, game studies uh, had a very difficult time establishing itself as a legitimate field of study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I would first go to conferences talking about my research with serious historians of technology, they're like, oh, this is really interesting and novel and all. But is this serious enough to be, you know, real history of technology? And of course, I said, absolutely. You know, again, this is a billion dollar industry early on. And now look look at what we're talking about figures today. It's insane. So, I mean, to, to suggest that it's not legitimate, especially when we're looking at all the internal components. I mean, every major hardware producer is, you know, dealing with this supply chain of, of the world, you know? So not only is it about gaming, it's about globalization. It's a, it's about consumer society. It's about soft power. It's about all these things, you know? Yeah. I can certainly see academics 
uh, kind of looking down on the idea of video game because I'm sure from a tr- from a traditional tech- technology history perspective, I mean, you're talking about things like assembly lines and Fords, and you're talking about yes. the yeah. evolution of en- powers, energy, um, you know, exploitation of resources. Video games, ah, that's just kid stuff. I'm sure I'm, I'm certain right. that's probably something that you've run into a few times. It has, and there. I I don't. As I said at the beginning here, I I enjoy labor history very much. There's a whole branch of game studies that deals with labor exploitation and deals with the global markets in terms of how games are produced. Mm. You know, talking about ethical capitalism and things along those lines. Um, I find it fascinating. It, it is a different line of, of research than I'm in, but uh, there are some significantly uh, good books. On, uh, excuse me, there are some great books on that issue. Um, so. Maybe that's a recommendation. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's cool. It's, it's it's a fascinating topic, and it's you know obviously something we could go on and on about. Um, like I said, I've I've played my share of games over the years, but um, have unfortunately fallen out of the habit. But uh, my son is now getting into the habit, so I'm I'm playing vicariously through him these days. Um, as he, it's an expensive habit. It, it really is. It is. He's uh, he's uh, he's been playing the Switch. Uh, we got that a, a year or two ago, and so. Um, okay. He's playing a lot of, you know, he's the age of Fortnite and Minecraft. So those are yeah, you know, I know. His, his obsessions <laughs> at the moment, but um, sure. he'll, he'll, he'll get out of that eventually. <laughs> well, I mean, those, these pay to play games are to me are uh, unhealthy for the industry uh, overall. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, free to free to play. And then you're like, Oh, how, how much for this skin for my gun? You know, oh, yeah. how much for this outfit? That's ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I, every time he's playing, I just cringe whenever I hear him say, "Hey, Daddy, do you can I get this?" Oh God, no! <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a free game. What's I, going on? Yeah, here? I know. I paid yeah. my six ninety nine for the game. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know that doesn't cover the development costs, but come on. Oh, well, anyway. So, what are your plans for this? I mean, do you plan on? I mean, it sounds like you're you're thinking about going into the you know the job market, looking for something in the game studies field. But so you're obviously thinking of sticking with the the um, video game uh, topic. Are you thinking of publishing? You thinking of going a book route? Or yes, uh, the dissertation is currently being revised into a full monograph. Uh, as you know, teaching as I full time as I do all over the place. It's I don't have much time to get it done, but I am cranking it out slowly. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm back on the conference circuit, which is nice. So I'm speaking at a number of conferences in 2020. Um, and I yeah, in terms of the the seeking of of the tenure track position. I'm looking at game studies positions, but again, I am a historian by trade. My PhD is in history. I love history. So to me, it makes more sense ultimately to teach the history of gaming from the perspective of, say, the history of technology, economic history, and business history, and even social history, and even cultural history, right. <laughs> um, as a, as a, and even religious history. I, that Jokes aside, you know, there's, there's stuff to study there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'll probably end up continuing to look for um, tenure track positions in history proper, uh, but I'm keeping all all avenues open at this point, and I'm I actually almost I'm also looking even looking at industry jobs. Uh, now I'm not really one for corporate America. I shouldn't have said that, um, <laughs> but uh, you know I, the academic world is much more my speed. Uh, but if something comes around, I'm I'm not going to turn it down because you know things are competitive out there, right. and I, I think that's the reality, and I think we have to confront that reality. So um, if it's history, great. Uh, my guess is it it could be game studies, uh, but I find that game studies for me is limiting on what I could do because my interests have shifted. Um, even though I got my PhD in the history of technology, 
I'm very much interested in uh, American environmental history. Clearly, current events are, are, are shaping my, my concern about the field, but I've always had an interest in, say, frontier history, mm-hmm. um, environmental history. So through the perspective of the history of technology, um, I might want to branch out more so into environmental history. And in a game studies career track, I would not have that option. Right. Uh, so, you know, again, if it, got, if it came to be that I'm a game studies professor, that's great. Uh, but ultimately, I, I really would like to have the option of teaching a variety of classes because, heck, I like teaching the history of ancient Rome. I like teaching, you know, the Crusades. I like teaching um, the Renaissance, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, so I, I just I think that history as a profession, I think why a lot of us get into it is because it is so open ended in what we can study. We can study pretty much anything, you know. Yeah. And something I often tell students, which is, I think, accurate, is there, everything has a history. So if you're interested in accounting. You can study the history of accounting. I don't know why I do that, but, uh, you know, uh, the history of, of zoology, you can study that, you know. So I, I love the openness of our discipline. Um, and I love the fact also that you can specialize in so many different things and still be a historian, you know, whereas game studies is I study gaming. Now, I could study a bunch of different things within gaming, but ultimately it is just gaming, you know. Yeah, and the everything has a history idea. That's actually kind of how I ended up in history because I was doing. I was. I think I've told. I probably told the story about it on the podcast before, but you were there, so I'll tell it again. The um, <laughs> uh, I started out as a math major in uh, in when I was in, doing my undergrad, and ended up taking a history of math class, and ended up liking the history part of it better than the math part, and became a, mis- a history major. <laughs> so it, you can kind of enter the field from lots of different directions, and then take it in a lot of directions yes. once you're there. I was a biology major in college ah. until junior year, and I what I found was, and this is probably what a lot of people do is I, I just found that I kept taking history classes mm-hmm. and I, I started to ask myself, you know, even at the young age of 19, 20, I was thinking, well, there's a reason why I'm taking all these history classes. And it seems to be that I should change my mind. And I did, I changed my major and I didn't look back, you know? And I, I think some of us fall into graduate school because we're anxious about the job market. And for me, that honestly was the case. I didn't know what to expect in the job market. I realized that I was pretty good at school. You know, I could read and write pretty well. Um, so I decided that I would go for a master's. And, and after the master's, I said, well, I'm not done. I'd like to do a better job. And I started over with the PhD. And it was each time I felt like it was a fresh beginning. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was a fun thing. Yeah, that's great. Now, staying up all night writing, you know, seminar papers is not something I'd look look back on fondly necessarily. Oh, sure. But the whole the whole experience and what I got out of it, uh, you know, made me who right. I am. Uh, there's there's no question. About yeah, that. exactly. I, you know, I would obviously not be anywhere near where I am today if I hadn't done it. So I've, despite all of the agony and late nights and all the stress, it I I'm happy I did it. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking for actually almost an hour now. So um, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> that's all right. So did you um, have any ideas for uh, recommendation? Uh, yeah, actually, I thought of one. Uh, since we we're talking about uh, sort of the fusion of global capitalism, technology, gaming, and so on and so forth, um, a book that actually inspired me early on. It's it's now uh, a few years old. It was actually oh, it's actually a decade old now. Um, it's called Games of Empire: Global Capitalism and Video Games. Um, what this book does is it shows you not just the uh, 
how they call them cultural intermediaries, the idea of basically marketers selling the product. But they also get into the nitty gritty details of what it is to produce games and what the labor force has to deal with. And I, I think that's an important thing to understand, you know, because in today's age, you know, we all have these really awesome smartphones, right? And they're produced in horrific conditions in many mm-hmm. cases. So, you know, something I ask my classes, especially my global awareness classes is, you know, how much would you pay for an ethically sourced smartphone? And I don't get many, many uh, low answers. I don't get many high answers, so to speak. I get very, I'm not willing to pay yeah. more, you know? Uh, and I, I think the book like this, and believe me, I'm not trying to be an activist here or anything along those lines, but, you know, they do a nice job of showing you not just the the fun side of the end product that you get to play. They show you how it actually gets to that point. Um, and I think it's important to understand. And I, I think that ties into, you know, conditions happening um, worldwide today. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to mention anything political, but, you know, if you look at the news, there's all sorts of economic tensions between large countries and the gaming industry is a big part of that. And, uh, you know, so anyway, that, that is a good recommendation. Um, I, I enjoy the book. It's certainly not for someone who's not into this topic, but um, it, it's, it's a solid piece of scholarship. The authors are all smart and I enjoyed it. So that would be my recommendation for this point. Let's see. So for my recommendation, yeah, I mean, you're, the conversation about video games has just opened up a whole lot of potential directions for me. I really can't settle on one. Um, there's because uh, of the, 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 the thing that I tend to, when I was, you know, when I was in college playing all the video games, and I was a and I was a history major, you know, of course, I would try to look for historical video games. And yeah. usually it turned into a disaster because very rarely like Oregon Trail. <laughs> Oregon, like Oregon Trail. <laughs> well, I mean, I played that that stuff in elementary school, but in uh, you know, Me it too. was stuff yeah. like um, <laughs> stuff like Total War, um, the yeah, Viking yeah. version, and um, yeah. I mean there were a bunch of different versions civilization, of all civilization. Games, yeah. And yeah. so I guess I'll just do a generic recommendation for his history related video games. Even if they suck, they're, they're usually at least somewhat amusing because of how bad the history might be in them. <laughs> so I'm trying to think the the uh, the one that Custer's Revenge. Ooh, I did not do that one. That sounds interesting. That is a horrible game, and but it's worth understanding. It's worth reading about. It's such a horrific game. Custer's Revenge. Oh, oh wow. What? Oh, I'm not going to describe the details okay. here, but it is. Uh, it, it's 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 offensive beyond offensive. Oh my god! And it was <laughs> it, it, it was actually quite popular, um, but. That actually brings, I, I know we're out of time, but it, actually that brings me something that I did. So Civilization IV, um, it's, it's what we call a turn-based strategy series, okay? In the fourth series of the game, they have these scenarios. And one of the scenarios was the American Revolutionary War. And what you could do is pick the British side and pick the American side. So I would have my classes play through the battles together. One side would be the British and one side would be the Americans. Mm-hmm. And I would let them either do exactly what happened or I'd let them deviate from the exact strategy. And it it got them engaged in a way that I didn't really think about. And another thing is there's a whole body of literature about using video games to teach history. So I think that's where you were going with that. Um, But there are a number of recommendations that are all escaping my mind at this point (laughs) um, that deal specifically with exactly like that, you know, uh, games in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that, you know, we could look at. Yeah, there was... um... God, it was probably six months or a year ago. One of the recommendations that I did on an earlier episode was for the um, Assassin's Creed games um, because yeah. they're uh, they, they take place in specific historical mil- mil- milieu, Con- milieu. <laughs> context. We'll go with context. 
<laughs> and um, there was, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was one there that where the game took place in Egypt and they released a special edition version where they stripped out all of the video game play, but just left behind the world to, that you could just basically explore. And then they incorporated in like GIS type stuff so that, you know, you go to this, this, you know, you go to a pyramid and it kind of explains what the pyramid is, where it was, what it was, you know, the, the construction of it. And then you could go into go into town and it would kind of give you details about the construction of various buildings and all of that. But it was, it was, it was basically the, the world that they had built for the video game to take place in. And then they just stripped out the video game and just let you just kind of wander the world. Um, it's like an open, accurate open world uh, situation. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds and by the accounts that I read, I haven't actually played it because again, I have no time. But uh, the stuff that I read about it, actually, people were actually fairly impressed with it. Historians were fairly impressed with it because it did a. Once you strip out the unrealistic video game type stuff, the you could tell they, they could tell anyway that a lot of research went into it. Um, sure, I, sure. So again, I didn't play it. I have no idea, <laughs> and I'm and I'm not an expert on ancient Egypt anyway, so I wouldn't know if they were lying to me or not. Me but, neither. I, me, me neither. I, me, me neither. You know, I, 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 that's not my thing. But right. I, I enjoy it. I just I don't I don't I can't I do not feel confident teaching a course uh, just on ancient Egypt. Right. Courses. That would be not be that would be a wrong fit. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, all right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. From Matt Chandler, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, and all their fallen comrades like Magnavox, Coleco, Atari, and all the others, I'm Rob Denning. Happy gaming, everybody. <laughs>